As you're turning there to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, I want to ask you a question. What is the most published, printed book in the world? Anybody have any idea? There you go. That's right. The Bible. The Bible is. Absolutely. The Bible is. And usually in lists of like the most printed or published or translated book, depending on what, what list it is, sometimes they'll say, and I saw this and it made me chuckle, the top 10 books except the Bible. Because, it, because it's a given that, of course, it is the most well-known. So it's going to be the top of every list. And so it's kind of their way of taking it out of the list, if you will. Except they put it in the title. <laughs> and so you can't get away from it. You can't get away from God's Word. Most published book in the world, the Bible. The second most published book in the world, in the English language. Any ideas? What's that? Dictionary. Webster's would be, that would be, I would, that, that's a really good guess. That's not it, but that's a really good guess. Webster's Dictionary. No. Uh, second most published book in the English language. Any idea? What was that? Tom Sawyer. That's another, not quite, not quite, but, but it is popular. Gospel of John. The book is by a man named John Bunyan and it's Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim's Progress. It's considered the first novel written in the English language. It was written in 1678. And this book, this story, Pilgrim's Progress, influenced popular writers. Here's some of them. Uh, Charlotte Bronte, C.S. Lewis, John Steinbeck, and even Mark Twain. In fact, Huckleberry Finn talks about it as he's floating down the river. He talks about the book Pilgrim's Progress. It was that influential. So, uh, 1678, John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. It's in two parts, and he wrote it while he was in prison. John Bunyan was in prison for 12 years. And he was in prison for 12 years because he was preaching the Word. Went to prison for a dozen years for preaching the Word. Why? Because at the time, the Church of England said it was illegal to have a meeting of more than five people outside of your family and talking about the Word of God. It was the Church of England trying to uh, exert its control. And you have to do it within approved places that we say. And so what people started to do is they started to meet out on the hillsides. And preachers and pastors would go out on the hillsides and we begin to teach the crowds. And John Bunyan was one of them. And he was arrested for a dozen years for teaching God's Word. While he was there... He wrote this book. As you're coming in the hallway, I understand. Sometimes, you know, we mention, hey, it's in the bulletin. Or, hey, you know, this or that. And people are like, I don't read the bulletin. It's like, okay, awesome. You know, what's that? The date's, the date's wrong, right? So therefore, right? But you would have to read it to know the date was wrong. Other, some people would not even know that, right? Uh, but then it's kind of like walking down the hallway too. And, you know, there's some artwork and some posters and stuff. But sometimes people don't even notice those. But maybe this morning you noticed, just before you came in, that there was a set of four small posters right outside these doors here. Those four posters are a visual map of the journey of the protagonist of Pilgrim's Progress. And if you're going to take a journey from where he starts in the book to where he ends in the book, you can follow his path and all of the, the traps and all of the pitfalls and that map is so long that it's split into four parts. And you start at the bottom of the first map and you go to the top. And then you go to the bottom of the second and you work your way all the way up. 
Now, the, the opening line of Pilgrim's Progress, this is my paraphrase, because if I gave you the Old English, I'd have to start interpreting Old English words. So here's, here's my paraphrase of the opening sentence. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I ended up in a certain place, which was a prison. And I laid down to sleep there. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. And then he begins to tell the story of Pilgrim's Progress. A dream with a protagonist whose name is Christian. And Christian lives in a city, and that city is called the City of Destruction. And he is told by a person whose name is the Evangelist. And the Evangelist tells him the city is going to be destroyed, but there is a city that will never be destroyed. And in Pilgrim's Progress, it's the celestial city, the city that lasts forever. And so Pilgrim's Progress... Why is he a pilgrim? Because he's on a pilgrimage. He's going from one place to another. The progress, you see his journey as he goes from the city of destruction to the eternal and everlasting city. That's what the book Pilgrim's Progress is about. In fact, the full title, this is great because older books have these really long titles, right? The Pilgrim's Progress from this world to that which is to come delivered under the similitude of a dream. That is the title. We, call, we shorten it to the Pilgrim's Progress. And on this journey, Christian comes along many different things. In fact, very close to where the city of destruction is, is the swamp of giving up. And you'll see all these places. I mean, there's even a guy named Lord Hategood. Lord Hategood will come. Beelzebub is in this story. There's even the atheist. And the atheist is walking on the king's highway. The king's highway leads to the celestial city and the atheist is walking on the king's highway in the opposite direction runs into pilgrim and says or runs into christian and says christian where are you going celestial city god those don't exist that's why i'm walking this way it's an amazing book it's a classic of literature and it's written in an older English, but there's many modern translations and there's even Pilgrim Progress for children. And if you look on YouTube, you'll even see a two hour video that, that talks about the story. It's fascinating. Pilgrim, uh, the Pilgrim Christian is going to end up at different places, but one place he ends up is at a gate and it's a gate that he must go through if he wants to get to the eternal city. And the person who told him about the gate was the evangelist. And the evangelist said, head for the gate. So today's message is also speaking of a gate. The title is called Enter the Narrow. Let's pray and we'll get into John chapter, or John, Matthew chapter 7 and we'll look at verse 13 and 14. Father, as we come before you, we thank you so much that you have drawn us here. And we thank you so much for wonderful literature. We thank you, Lord, for your children who you inspired, whether in a dream, whether through their experiences, even challenging ones, and they wrote it down. We thank you, Lord, for their perseverance and faithfulness, which you gave to them. Lord, we pray as we read these words, we pray that they would speak to our heart and to our lives. I pray, Lord, for the believer that it would encourage us and it would focus us and it would give us an urgency to continue to seek after you. And for the non-believer, I pray that it would spark something in their mind and would cause them to consider an option that maybe they haven't. God, only you can do the work this morning. So we ask you, I ask you for your power and your direction. Teach us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Matthew chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. How about we read that and then we'll talk about what we're reading here. 
Jesus speaking, Sermon on the Mount. He's coming to the close and he says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Verse 14, For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Two verses today. Two verses as we start today. Or we can just roll all of that together and we can just teach it quick and be done. Except, this is very, very important. We're reading about two separate gates. One is wide, one is narrow. And then it gives us a description of these gates. There's an outline I think we'll put on the screen here about the two gates. And these two gates, real simple, real simple outline here, nothing too difficult. There's a wide gate, and what are its descriptors? It's easy, many enter it, it leads to destruction. A narrow gate, it's hard. Few enter it, it leads to life eternal. If you're looking for a summary of the two verses, there's the summary of the two verses. But we need to talk about that. Easy. What is it about this gate that is so wide? It's so... Let's see, let's use some words here. It's so tolerant. It is so accommodating. Now those words all sound great, but you have to figure out what context they're used in. What do you mean? I mean, a wide gate sounds really good. It's wide. I don't want to be bumping into any gate. Like, I want to be able to get through it. You know, I don't want it to be like, I don't want to like go side. Well, I don't want to do that. I want it to be wide, spacious, accommodating. Except if it leads in the wrong direction. And part of what makes this gate appealing and its wideness is it's easy. What does that mean, easy? Well, it's almost this idea that the gate that's wide, it has, um, if it could speak, it would say this to the person that comes to it. What do you want? Because we'll make this gate match whatever you want it to be. What makes you comfortable? What makes you, what do you want to hear? There we go. How about we start there? The gate, the wide gate says. Why don't we start with what you want to hear? And then we'll just surprisingly say everything you want to hear. It's easy. It's accommodating. Ravi Zacharias uh, uh, said this when he was asked this question in a college question and answer. He was asked this question, you know, there's a lot of religions in the world and they all talk, you know, they talk about God and they talk about um, uh, who he is and all of that. And Christianity does as well. But what is the difference between Christianity and all other religions? It appears that all religions speak about the same thing and go in the same direction. And Ravi Zacharias' answer, I thought, was so well put. I wasn't going to teach this message for weeks and I quote, I wrote it down so I could put it in the notes today because I just thought it fits so well to this. He said this. He said, it appears that religions of our world are all fundamentally the same. That's the way it appears. The average person would say, oh, the religions of the world, it's all, they're all fundamentally the same. They only look different on the outside. For one, you have Buddha. For the other one, you have Jesus. For the other, you have Mohammed. But they're all the same. Fundamentally, they, a person may say they're all the same. It just looks different on the surface, superficially. But Ravi Zachariah said it's exactly the opposite. 
He said, the religions of the world are fundamentally different, but superficially they look the same. On the outside, they look as if they're all similar, but if you look at them fundamentally, they are different. They are different from Christianity. Christianity is not like any other religion. Why? Because there's something about Christianity that makes it unique. Why is it unique? I wrote a couple things down. Here's some of the things about Christianity that make it different. For Christianity, it's not you trying to reach God. For Christianity, it's the only religion where God reached down to us. God came to us. You don't have to work to get to God. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to be holy enough because you, in fact, Christianity starts out with you're dead. You can't do it at all in your own effort. It is impossible. Well, I give up. No, wait. But for God, all things are possible. So God will send his son here to us. In Christianity, God came to us. In other religions, you must work your way to God. How, what's another way that Christianity... Well, let me give you this verse here too. Romans 5, 8, to illustrate that point of God coming to us. But God shows his love for us that, in, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while you were still in your dead state, God sent Jesus. That's how we know. You want to know God loves you? God sent his son to a dead person, you and I. Christianity is different. It's not like other religions where you've got to keep track of what you've done and how many times you've done it. And, oh no, I didn't this time and I've I got to really work it. I've got to really do... It's not what Christianity is about. What else makes Christianity different? Well, Christ makes Christianity different. Jesus makes Christianity different. One of the ways it makes it different, he fulfilled the prophecies concerning himself. Many things were said about Jesus. And now somebody may argue and go, well, hold on, hold on. There are prophecies made about other leaders of other religions. True, they are. And it would appear for some, if they're like, well, it happened and they, they came true for them too. Okay, uh, did they, uh, are these, these prophecies, were they made before this person was born? Because some of the prophecies of Jesus even concern where he was born. How in the world can you choose where you're going to be born? But even for Jesus, where he was going to be born, where he would be raised, his life, there are things prophesied that he couldn't have known unless he's outside of time and space and he can see the whole span, unless he's God. Which brings me to the third part about why Christianity is different. And I love it because we remember it every Sunday. Every Sunday? Yes, because the early church changed the day that it worshipped from Saturday to Sunday. Why? Because it was on the first day of the week that Jesus rose from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is so profound and it is the pivot, like a door that hinges. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is what our faith hinges on because if he didn't resurrect, then we're all fools. Then what we believe in is foolish. But because he did resurrect, we have confidence that he is the true and the living God and he sent his son Jesus for us. We should be encouraged and we shouldn't be wishy-washy in this world and going, is what I believe true? Should I believe this? I don't know. It all sounds the same. It is not the same. It is not the same. 
And so we talk about those points and the point of the first one. It's easy. Yes, the other religions of the world, there's a lot of the accommodating, whatever you want, whatever you'd like it to be. Okay, what about the second point there for the wide gate? The second point for the wide gate, it's easy. And it said, many enter by it. Can we put that up one more time? The, uh, there it is. Many enter it. Here's the thing, because it, ha- it, because it so appeals to the flesh, the carnal nature. Hey, what do you want? What do you want the truth to be? Great. You said it. I'm just going to echo it back to you. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel really good. It's almost like it was my idea. It actually was because you just said it. We're just echoing your words right back to you. No wonder it feels so good to you. Come on in. Come on in. And I just want to say this. Sometimes, you know, we live in a world that really um, makes decisions based on the popular vote at times. It's kind of like, you know, a person that's unsure. They can come into a room and it's like, hey, how do you feel about this? Maybe it's a strong question. And the person would hesitate and they start to look to see what the majority vote is going to be. And then they're just kind of, who said yes? Most of the people said yes. I'm going to raise my hand for yes. Have you even thought about what the question is? No, I just don't want to look like a fool. And so I'd rather vote with the majority than look like a fool. I have to say that people will enter the wide gate because many are going there. Well, how could everybody be wrong? How could so many people be wrong? I think I'm just going to go with the majority. And for that church, all I have to say is look at the book of Genesis and look at the flood. Everybody on the planet was wrong except for eight people. The entire planet was wrong except for eight. You do not want to go with the majority if the majority is going the wrong way. Wide is the gate and many enter it. Some because they just go, it's what most people are doing. I'm just going to go with the flow. And like a dead fish, they will float downstream. It takes a live one to swim against the current. The current of this world is not flowing in the direction of the narrow gate. It's flowing in the direction of the wide gate. It's like a lazy river. Just sit in your inner tube and just let it carry you. But if you want to find the narrow gate, you're going to have to swim. And it's not your strength. God will give you strength. But you have to want to. And so I just want to say this. Don't look for safety in numbers necessarily. Because by the way, Christians, we are in the minority. We are. Maybe if you look, you go, well, you know, in our country, it appears that I would say even in our country, just take a look. And then if you expand it out to our world, church, we are the minority. But then again, that's nothing new. It's not. It's not. And so we look, not many are going to enter it. And this is the part so heavy The wide gate leads to destruction. The person telling us is a person who would know all things. Jesus is saying this. This is not just somebody. This is the guy that resurrected from the dead. He said, the wide gate is easy. Many go to it and it leads to destruction. I'm going to listen to his words. You know, this idea of leading to destruction, this feeling that I can work my way to God, that's self-righteousness. In other words, I'm going to make myself right. Self-righteousness, listen carefully, is self-deception. Self-righteousness is self-deception. I can be good enough and I can make myself right before God. That person is deceived and they don't even know it. And the wide gate will look very appealing to that person. 
Proverbs uh, 14, 11 and 12 says, The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. Well, I'm going to use my intellect and I'm going to work this out so it makes perfect sense to me. And boy, that really appeals to me. And so I think that's the right way because it appeals to me. It, 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 it hits all of the things that I want it to be. Church, let me encourage you this. When you try to figure out decisions in your life and you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do next and you pray, if what you hear coming back is exactly every single thing that you want, I want to encourage you to do something. I'm not saying that it isn't the Lord. Here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Pause and pray and wait for more confirmation. Worry when what you think God wants for you is exactly everything that you want. Because how do you know that you're not being self-deceived? How do you know that it's not just you thinking about it so much that at which point you're going, I think it's God. No, it's not. You've just put yourself in a spin cycle and you've spun yourself so many times that now you think your own voice is the voice of God. Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. It's really important when we make those decisions. And it's important for us. That's why it's important for us to have a body of believers around us. And you know what? Hold close those brothers and sisters in Christ that will look at you and go, I need to tell you something. Your idea, that thing that you think is God, that's not God, that's actually you. If you've ever had anybody that lovingly has told you the truth, even though it's stung for a little bit, hold those people really close to you because they are invaluable. Because they are willing to be used by God to speak the truth into your life, even if you don't like what it sounds like. Those people are few and far between in this world. I would encourage you to hold those people close, but here's something else I encourage you to do. You be that person to others. You know it. You know it like I know it. There's times where you're going, I don't want to have to say it. I don't want to say it. Maybe somebody else will say it. Why do you think you're struggling with having to say the truth to somebody? Because God wants you to speak for him to them. And what if, they may not like me. They may, they may, I just want to tell them that everything that they're thinking is great. Good job for you. I think, yeah, that sounds great. When you know it doesn't, you need to speak up. You need to be a voice of truth in that person's life. Don't let them go in a wide path. Don't let them go to the easy way that leads to destruction if you know that it is that way. If God has put it on your heart, share the truth with them. So that way, if you're praying and you're going, Lord, I just would really, and you're like, you know, I think God wants me to move to Hawaii. And I think he wants, whatever your, your like ideal situation is, be wary if all of a sudden that just opens wide. Now, again, it might be God. I'm not here to say that that won't be, but you have to be cautious of your own self okay so we bring the outline back up again we look again at it and so let's look at the let's look at the other gate please can we get to the other gate let's get to the other gate (laughs) the narrow gate jesus said for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few so we look at it oh can we admit we don't like this word right here hard hard the narrow gate is hard Why is it hard? You know, it's interesting because I think even better than hard, impossible might be even better, right? Because without God and God's strength, you couldn't even get there. If God never, if God didn't reveal himself to us, we could never even know that there was a gate to him. 
So we must always keep that in mind. It's not us working our way to God. If God didn't make it possible, we wouldn't even have a chance. And so we look at this, and so we must examine this word hard. What is hard about the narrow gate? Because it won't be a cakewalk. Going in the right direction will not feel like floating down a river where you do nothing and you just are like, I'm going to put my hands behind my head and cross my legs and in a few hours we will arrive at the destination. How much work did it take me? None. I just floated. No. That is not the narrow gate. That's a different gate. We already talked about it. For the narrow gate, only through Jesus can we experience what is beyond this narrow gate. The difficulty of the narrow gate, I think you can ask people throughout history, people like John Bunyan, who while he was in jail for a dozen years for teaching God's word, he wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Was it easy for him? No. So he had to put effort towards it. He wasn't working towards salvation. He's already saved. That wasn't the issue. But he was worried. It wasn't going to be easy. It was going to cost him something. To enter the narrow gate will cost you. What will it cost you? Everything that is wider than the gate. Because it won't make it through. And so, maybe there's the comical movies of the people that are holding the big two-by-fours. Maybe it's an old, like, uh, uh, Moe, Larry, and Curly, right? The Three Stooges or something like that. Where, or Charlie Chaplin or some black-and-white film where they've got this long two-by-four and they're trying to go through a door and it keeps bumping against the door frame because it's clearly too wide. Christian, the narrow gate is only wide enough for what is important to go through. The reason it's narrow is because everything wider than it is unnecessary. We live in a country and a culture of much width. We can accumulate many things that begin to expand our reach and all of a sudden we're out and then in the true American fashion, let me grab that real quick. Okay. I got that too. I got, I got another finger. There's a pinky. Okay, got that too. Oh, there's some stuff over here. Okay, which way am I supposed to walk, Jesus? Oh, that way. Oh, I really... I, got, I don't think I can... I, you can't. You have to let go. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm going to sort of sell all my worldly possessions. No, it means that you have a light touch on all the things of the world. And that way... When you walk through, if stuff starts peeling off of your life, you just go, didn't need it anyway. It means your heart is not attached to those things. So that way, if a couple of them drop, you go, yeah, didn't need it. I couldn't hold on to it anyway. And then you start to go, you know what? Why am I spending all this energy holding on to all this stuff? And then you just let it go. And you know the interesting thing? Some of it will stay because God will allow you to have those things. That's okay. But you no longer are making your life all about the accumulation of the stuff. The narrow way is hard because it goes against at times what we want. I want this. I want that. God says, let it go. Let it peel off of your life and walk through the narrow gate. You can see why this message would be unpopular. You can see why the wide gate, oh no, bring your stuff, bring your U-Haul, bring all your stuff. You don't need to change a single thing about yourself. Nothing, you don't need to change anything about yourself. You just bring all of it in and God won't change a single thing about you either. He'll leave you just the way you are. 
flee from that kind of message. Because that's the person standing at the wide gate, ushering people in. It says that there are few that enter into it. Every time I think about that, that just, that makes my heart heavy. I can't make a decision for anybody else except for me. That doesn't mean though that I don't have that heavy heart for people. Knowing that I look at people and the majority of the people in human history, few have chosen God. Remember, there was a planet full of people and all of them continually were doing wickedness before the Lord except for eight people. Few enter it. And the gate back then in the book of Genesis, that gate, it was the door to the ark. How many entered into the door to the ark? Eight. How many could have entered? As many as wanted to. There's plenty of room in the ark. There's plenty of room. The issue isn't room. How much room is there on the other side of the narrow gate? Oh, there's no end to it. But few will come in because it's narrow. They will look at it and go, oh, it's narrow. It's so intolerant. It is so... It, it is so... Um, it's too hard. It's too narrow-minded. No, it's narrow-gated. It's designed that way. And it's, it's for a good reason because you don't take anything more than what you need going in. It's few because it's not the majority view. I would just encourage you, when you see a majority view, worry about that. And, and don't necessarily just jump into a majority view. Make sure you think about what you're agreeing or not agreeing to, what you're stepping into, which direction you're going. Because just because the crowd is going that way, even in our American culture, it must be right because we're American. Hmm. Be careful. Be careful because we're sinners. And here's the third part. Oh, it leads. This gate is the doorway that leads to life eternal. So the thing is, after you go to that narrow gate, it just opens up. See, the gate is just kind of the, the, the smallest point of it. And the enemy wants people to think, oh, you come to know Jesus. It's just, it's so narrow and it's just this narrow claustrophobic hallway. No, not at all. Once you get through the narrow gate, you know what opens up for you? All the things of the Lord. It opens up wide. All of a sudden you have these resources. What resources? You have the love of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, the peace of the Lord. You have forgiveness that comes from God. You don't walk in shame anymore or guilt. You don't have to do that. But that only exists on the other side of the narrow gate. It doesn't exist on the other side of the wide gate. And see, that's just this life here. Wait until the life to come when you and I reach the celestial city, Christian. The city that will never end, who's ruled by a king who is perfect and just. It only gets better from then on. From then on till when? It doesn't end. It doesn't end. You know, um, the, the, the picture that you have, if we can put the title screen up just for a moment, and the thing that's on your bulletin, it's, this is a, a section of a, the canyon called the Narrows. This is Zion National Park. And the, the walls are about a thousand feet tall. But in this section right here, the Narrows, it's about 20 to 30 feet wide. 20 to 30 feet wide, a thousand feet up. And it gets its name really well. I think we have another one. We have the Narrow one of Zion Park. We can put that in too. Uh, maybe we can show that graphic. 
And um, there's that one there. So, you know, as you come in, and it's hard to tell, I'm sure, by the way this is, but it, it actually snakes to the left and then it goes around that way. And so you're entering into this place. And can you understand why maybe a narrow gate or a narrow passage? It's like, I don't know, I'm kind of out in the open. I, I like it. I'm a bit claustrophobic. Except the thing is, it's Jesus that's right there calling you forward, going, I'm here, come with me. Come, you don't have to be afraid. I, I know it's narrow, but it's not too wide for you to come in. And it's not too narrow that you can't come in. And for Jesus even to say, grab my hand, let's walk through. Come with me. And see, then your good shepherd is leading you through even the narrow parts. Even if it feels like you're in a valley. Maybe even, even the shadow of death is there. Don't worry. You won't fear any evil because he's with you. Don't be afraid to go into the narrow place with Jesus. And the thing is, in your life, multiple times, you'll be called to go into a narrow place. And as we do, we accumulate more things and our heart gets attached to so many things that will only last as long as this world. And then Jesus again calls us, come back to a narrow place with me. You need to knock some more of that stuff off. Your heart's getting attached to too many things that are of no real eternal value. Hold my hand, let's walk. But you're always given a choice. You can always refuse. If we look at the next one, though, here's the thing. This is the lie that I think, if you look at Zion National Park, this is what happens after you get through the narrows. It opens up. But you'll never get to the open part unless you go through the narrow. The enemy will never tell you about this. The enemy will just say, it's just this narrow, and maybe it even gets to a point where it's a dead end. Why would you restrict yourself in this life? You just live the life, whatever you want, do whatever you do. Find a religion that basically echoes your own feelings. And then just follow that and your life will be wide. But no, it doesn't lead to this place. It leads to a different place where the gate is wide and then there's the cliff that drops off. Church, I understand that overwhelmingly we're Christian here, but we live in a community and in a world that isn't. We have to have a heart for people that are going the wide way. And we have to ask God that he might give us the word that we can share with them the truth in a way that they would hear it not that they would be turned off you know i don't want you like just screaming and yelling at people go you're going to hell like boy nothing as appealing to follow jesus is that statement i do understand that there are times i get it there are times where that is the case but i don't think that should be your default setting and i think some christians get stuck on that setting or the when when what god's saying is reason with people and the thing is why we're sometimes challenged about reasoning with people about our faith is because we don't fully understand our own faith. How can you reason with somebody if you don't understand the reason why you're doing it? And so that's why we must be students of God's word so that we know why we believe it, that we believe it within our heart and with our very being because we've looked at it and we've looked at the truth and the evidence ourselves. And then you can encourage and reason with other people. I'm a Christian because it makes logical sense. It makes logical sense. It's not just based on emotion. There are emotions involved, and boy, do I love the emotions, but it's not based on it. It's based on truth. And once I found out that this is based on truth, that Jesus, what he spoke was true, I thought, I can get behind that. I can follow him with my whole life. And I haven't for the last 20 years of my life regretted that decision that I've made. Enter in because there is joy unspeakable and everlasting right on the other side. So the thing is, Jesus invites, enter. Notice how he says, enter by the narrow gate. He doesn't just say, there is a narrow gate and there is a wide gate. The very first word in the verses we read was an invitation word. Jesus says, 
enter by the narrow gate. He didn't say enter by the wide gate. He always said to enter by one gate, the narrow one. So God himself is inviting you. I need an invitation. I don't know. Am I invited to come? First word in verse 14 there that we we were just reading in Matthew 7. Enter by the narrow gate. Why are you going to enter? Why would you want to come? Because you've been invited to come that way. So how do I enter the narrow gate? First of all, you have to leave any type of righteousness you think that comes from yourself because you don't have it. There is no self-righteousness. Well, I give to the poor. I come to church. I'm really nice. I don't kick my dog. Like I do all these things. I'm a fairly nice person. Yet none of that is going to get you to a relationship with God. Not a single one of those things. Wait, so you're saying I shouldn't do those things? No, you should do those things, but just realize those things are not what make you righteous. In fact, none of those things on that list make you righteous. Not a single one. Well, how do I get righteous? You have to admit that you aren't. You have to turn from your ways and you have to believe that Jesus is the one who makes you righteous, that his death is what makes you right. Well, what did I do to make myself right? Nothing. You just accepted the person who does make you right before God, Jesus. That's really humbling. And that is a stumbling block for Christianity with other people. Those that aren't Christians, the one, the thing that can stumble them is they go, wait, I have to humble myself. I'm not into that. If you don't humble yourself, you can never get into the narrow gate. It requires humility. You can't be a Christian unless you're humble. You can't. You can't become a Christian unless you're humble. Look at this. This idea for the narrow gate, it also says that you have to look for it. You're seeking this narrow gate. You have to be looking in your life. Where is the narrow gate in my life? And remember, it's not going to be necessarily the most appealing gate. So you look around at the options. You go, I would really like to do that. Church, just so you know, yes, we're going to vacation in Arizona. I want you to know this. And, And most of you that have been here for a while, you recognize this and you know this to be true. I really like Arizona. It's really nice. Oh no, here we go. Here's where he tells us he's moving. No, I'm not moving. In fact, every time we visit, they're like, you guys are back. We're like, to visit. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, would you guys ever think of coming back? And it's like, no. And it's like, no. Because here's the thing. If I'm thinking about it, then my heart is already halfway there. I'm not thinking about it because that's not where I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be here. But what if you're supposed to be someplace else? Then at that appropriate moment, God will let me know. Until then, I'm not supposed to worry about what the next step is. I'm supposed to do a really good job at my current step, as are all of us. And so just so you know, there is the appeal of, oh, well, I just want to, I want to do these things. These are the things that I want to do. Look in your life for the narrow gate and don't be surprised when the narrow gate is not always checking all of your personal boxes, because this life is not about checking all of your personal boxes. It's about glorifying God. And you know, here's the thing, you work hard for the Lord, you love the Lord, and maybe you don't live in exactly where the place you've wanted to live, and you don't get the job that you thought was your dream job and all of that. Uh, When you see Jesus face to face, not a single one of your hopes and dreams of this world are going to matter. That's the reality. We should live our life as if that is the truth, because that is the truth. In the first instant of you seeing Jesus face to face, not a single one of your hopes and dreams of this world Oh, I, you know, I wanted years ago, I was like, I want to go to the Olympics. It'd be really cool to go to the Olympics one of these years. I'd really love to go do that. Whatever. Who cares? Who cares? Hey, it's a big world. There's some places I'd like to visit. Hmm. If I don't visit those, but I see Jesus face to face, will I regret not going and seeing those places? No, not at all. 
Do you realize what that statement does? That brings you freedom because you can now faithfully do whatever God has called you to do because you know you're going to see him face to face. Stop looking at the next step and five steps after that and 15 steps after that because that's the enemy going, how can I make them do a poor job right now? Have them look way, way far ahead. Meanwhile, you're doing an inadequate job at what you've been called to do right now. Okay. So church, no point in standing outside of the gate. Oh, that's a narrow gate. I know that's a narrow gate. Very nice. Nice gate. You see it? Very nice. Very slim. (laughs) No, it doesn't do anything for you unless you go into it. So now this is the part you must do. You must walk through it. You leave your self-righteousness and you realize that only God is righteous. You know, sometimes you hear this, this term, the straight and narrow. And I, I, up until this study, I thought it was the word straight with the G-H, you know, straight, like straight and narrow. So it's both straight instead of crooked. It's straight and it's also narrow. No, the word straight is spelled S-T-R-A-I-T. And what does the word S-T-R-A-I-T mean? Straight, it means narrow. So when we say the straight and narrow, we mean the narrow and narrow is what we mean. That's what that means. I always thought it meant not crooked and narrow. No, no, it means narrow and narrow. It's emphasizing how narrow it actually is. So church, since we have this narrow way and this narrow path, and if you've said, okay, I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and you have walked through the narrow gate. Okay, this is great. I've made it through and now I have no burdens. I have no worries. Everything is just great. Well, if you're a real human being, you realize I can sometimes have shame or guilt or anxiety or pain. Here's some things I didn't tell you about Christian. Christian, Christian, the protagonist of Pilgrim's Progress. When he starts out in the city of destruction, he's got this massive backpack of burdens. And it is an ugly, disgusting patchwork and it keeps getting added on as he adds more. And he's, in some of the drawings that are there as people have been reading the story, he's like this as he's walking with this ugly, the, the, the burdens that he carries are greater than himself. And he's hunched over, barely walking. And he's, he's getting out of the city of destruction. He meets the evangelist. The evangelist says, you have to go through the narrow way. And he goes through this gate. It's called the, in their speak, in the English speak, the old English, it's called the wicked gate. Not wicked, like evil, but wicked. W-I-C-K-E-T, the wicked gate. The wicked gate is, wicked also can mean narrow or small gate. Um, Do we have, I think, yes, we do have a picture of a wicked gate or a narrow gate. I wanted to show you this. This is the the picture from a distance. You go, that's a huge gate. No, that's not the wicked gate. The wicked gate is this one the gate within the gate. It's the small one. It's this one right here. And sometimes you may see this. You may see a large door, but there's a tiny door that actually gets used. And now, okay, Pilgrim's Progress. This must be great because Christian then, he walks through this narrow, the wicked gate, right? And there's the celestial kingdom and the end, right? No. If you go out and look at those posters and you look at the very first poster, The top of the first poster, at the bottom is the city of destruction. You get to the top of it, it's the wicked gate, the narrow gate. Wait, we have three more posters left? Yes. Welcome to the Christian life. This is why it's called the pilgrim's progress. Because it's not, oh, I accepted Jesus and now everything's perfect. That is a lie. God is perfect, but we still aren't. And this world isn't. And there are consequences of all of that. 
the world, the flesh, the devil. They're still influences. And that's what the book Pilgrim's Progress is beautiful because it talks about the reality of the challenges that a Christian faces after entering through the narrow gate. And then that's what the next three posters are, are all the challenges, the pitfalls, the side roads that a Christian can take in this life. But you're supposed to stay on the king's highway because that's the one that leads to that eternal kingdom. So maybe that's why you're wondering like, wait, if I've entered by the narrow gate, why do I still have my shame in this? Wait, 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 hold on. Did Christian, when he went through that wicked gate, that narrow gate, did all those burdens finally fall off? Was he like, hey, I'm, everything's great? No, no. He still had these burdens. And I think you and I understand that you can go through this life with some heaviness. But they start to be relieved and the weight is relieved off of him. When is the weight relieved off of him? When he realizes that he doesn't have to have shame for his burdens. This is when you realize that those burdens that he's carrying, they aren't his sins. They're the shame and guilt he feels. When he started out in the city of destruction, the shame and the guilt was crushing because he knows who he is. He goes in through the wicked gate and as the journey continues, his load is being lightened. Why? Because he's realizing he doesn't have to live in shame and guilt. Christian, I need you to know you don't have to live in shame and guilt. We all get it. You're not perfect and you sin. Okay. The enemy is doing a great job trying to beat you up. You stop doing it to yourself. God loves you and he cares for you. You don't have to live in shame and guilt. You just need to go to Jesus and you need to tell him that you are struggling with shame and guilt and ask him to alleviate your burden and he will do it. Church, we have to enter by this narrow gate. Okay, pastor's coming to a close here a little bit. Oh, he lies. He's got another page. It's okay. It'll be fast. It'll be fast. It's good. We're going fast here. Um, there's a statement. All roads lead to God. No, they don't. No, no. The two gates have different destinations. They don't go in the same direction. Jesus said it himself in John 14, verses 6 and 7. Jesus said, I am the way. He's that way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's pretty narrow. It's How narrow is it, Jesus. That is the path to know God is through his son, Jesus. That is the way that God has ordained that people would know him is through Jesus. And then Jesus says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him. In other words, you do know God, the father, and you have seen him. How do I know God, the father? Jesus says, because you've seen me. You know, for the, the Mormons that would go, oh, Mormons are just like Christians. And I even asked them, hey, so, you know, what do you think about Jesus, you may say? And they'll go, well, Jesus, we believe he's the son of God and, you know, he's the savior and, you know, he's our, he's our friend. Yeah, but if you back him up and go, wait, is he God? Oh, a, stun, a silence will come across because they don't believe he's God. Jesus believes he's God. Jesus is God. See, it's, if we don't look at it, it's the small subtleties, but those subtleties, those slight one degree off, that one degree off will not lead you to the, it won't lead you to the celestial kingdom. So you can have all the appearances of being a Christian without being a Christian. It's completely possible for that to be the case. And that would be a sad deception for the person that at the end of their life thought that by doing all these good things, they didn't realize they were on a righteous trip and they really had not put their faith in the person of Jesus Christ. So all roads do not 
lead to God. And here's the other thing. This is the thing. If all roads lead to God, you must consider this. Then what Jesus did on the cross was absolutely unnecessary. Why in the world did God send his son to die if there are many ways to get to God? And so for the person that's like, oh, well, you know, you can have many ways to go to God. That's an offense then to what Jesus did on the cross. Ah, your death was worthless. There's no reason for it. There's many ways to God other than you. And so there would be no point for Jesus to die if there were multiple ways to get to the cross. It makes no sense. And again, I like to think logically. It makes no sense for Jesus to have died if there are other ways. Even for Jesus when he was in the garden. Father, if there's any way, if this cup may pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. So even Jesus, he knew there was no other way, but for our benefit, stated it and it was written for us so that we would know there is no other way. Even in the garden, there was no other way. So how do I get on this path? How do I go through this narrow gate? You repent from your sin. You believe upon Jesus alone. Are you going to be discouraged in this life? Yes, that's the the pilgrimage we're on. And there's some progress that happens through it. Will you be challenged from time to time? Oh, certainly, certainly. Are you supposed to hold fast to Jesus the whole time? Absolutely. Because he's going to walk you on that road all the way, all the way. So Jesus's first word in the, in the verses we read, enter. It's an invitation. It's an invitation for you to draw near to God. We won't show this on the screen, but I want to tell you about the very first invitation in the Bible. The very first invitation in the Bible was in the garden. And it was after Adam and Eve had sinned. And God says this, this was the invitation. But the Lord God called to man and said to him, where are you? Now, you have to wonder, this is God. He knows exactly where they are physically. That wasn't the question. The question was, where are you with me? Where, where is your relationship with me? That was the question God was asking Adam. And that was an invitation. I don't understand. How is the question, where are you? How is that an invitation? Because it was an invitation for Adam and Eve at that point to say, God, we have done what you told us not to do. We admit what we have done is wrong. And we take full responsibility for everything that we did. God gave them an invitation and an opportunity to confess their sin right there. God's always giving invitations. But if we remember from the story, from the the book of Genesis, Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. That wasn't the answer to the question. The question from God is, where are you with me? And Adam instead makes an excuse. And then... God says, well, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Another invitation. It's like a parent going, who broke the uh, vase? The vase that's right here. And the child's going, it's an invitation for the child to confess what they have done, which the parent already knows. Did Adam say, oh, the tree you commanded us not to eat? Yes, God. No, what did he say? The woman who you gave to me gave me fruit of the tree and I ate it. Do you understand that when God gives invitations, you can choose to make excuses? That's what happened with the first invitation I see in the Bible in the book of Genesis. That invitation, instead of receiving it and just confessing before God, humility, excuses were made. And because of that, you see the consequence of sin that we even live with now to this age. You know, there's two doors, the narrow, there's two gates, the narrow and the wide 
Jesus even said this in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And in this particular example, you cannot serve God and money. But the truth is, you cannot serve God and anything else. Oh, I'm going to go through the narrow and the wide gate. No, sorry, those two gates, no. Mm -mm. You'll love one and you'll hate the other. You can't do both. You've got to pick. Choose wisely. Because whichever gate you go through, you become a slave to whichever master you choose. I'm not a slave to anybody. Oh, yes, you are. Yeah, you do. but here's the beauty of it. You get to choose who your master is. Will you choose a kind and benevolent master or will you choose a cruel and harsh master? You choose, choose wisely because it's an eternal decision. We need to reason with people to explain to them these things. Okay. There's a thought here among some, some fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, that have come to me and they, they've say from time to time, you know, this whole born again thing. They usually come from more conservative um, parts of Christianity, right? And they have this idea of like, you're kind of over, overemphasizing this born again thing, this born again thing, this born again thing. Almost as if the born again thing is like a hippie thing that started in the 60s or the 70s. Like it's like this huge born again movement, right? It didn't start there. The, the time we see it talked about, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And he ended up coming to Jesus because he didn't want to do it publicly. He wanted to ask Jesus a question. It's in John chapter 3, verse 2 and 3. This man, that's Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's where we get born again from. And if we look at the words of Jesus, we realize that you cannot be a Christian unless you are born again. It's impossible. Unless you are born again, you cannot be a Christian. So sometimes we get hung up on certain words and now oh, you guys push the born again thing a lot. Um, Jesus mentioned the born again thing. We're just kind of, you know, saying what he said. So, you must be born again. So we close this message. We're coming down to this, this, this final point here. And I want to put up a picture. Can we put up a picture of the fire? I think if we've got that one. And if I remembered, I may not have given you that. Okay. Imagine in your mind's eye, this picture. It's a burning building. There's somebody on a high story. Ladder truck comes up. Ladder's extended. The building's starting to go up quickly now. All other exits are, tr are cut off. The firefighters on the end of the ladder is extending out and it's getting closer and closer to the window. It appears that there will be enough time for the person trapped inside to be reached by the firefighter and taken back down to safety. Okay, that's the picture that's in your mind's eye. I want you to think about the statement I'm about to say. You are not saved by believing that Jesus died for you. Think about that for just a second. You are not saved by believing the statement or believing the fact that Jesus died for you. Well, I don't know that I think that is, hold on, just think just for a second here. Cause remember this, even the demons believe that Jesus died for sins. So if you just go, I believe Jesus died to forgive people of sins. True. But that doesn't make you a Christian. This, the, the demons believe that as well. The demons believe that Jesus died on a cross to forgive man of sin. Yes. The demons know that Satan knows that doesn't make you a Christian. What makes you a Christian? 
You're not saved by believing that Jesus died on a cross for you. You're saved by believing in Jesus. It's, it's a subtlety, but I think it's really important. Some people feel like, well, I believe in the act that Jesus did. Jesus says, believe me. Believe in me. It's a personal thing. Sometimes people want to believe in what Jesus did on the cross and that kind of makes it a little less personal. And Jesus says, oh no, I want this to be absolutely personal. I want you to believe not in what I did for you on the cross. I want you to believe in me. So we go back to our firefighter. He's reaching that point where the building is about to be totally engulfed. The person that's in the building that can see the firefighter and the firefighter is only a few feet away, that person can believe that the firefighter, if they walk up to the edge of the window and grab onto the firefighter, they will be saved. They can believe that. Does that mean they're saved? As they stand in the burning building, are they saved because they believe that the firefighter can come up and save them? The answer is no. You're not saved until you walk forward, go out the window and grab onto the firefighter. Until then, you're not actually saved. So you can have an intellectual knowledge while you stand in your burning building going, if I do this, I'll be saved. True, but you're not saved right now. You have to believe in the person. You can't just believe in the action of what, hap- what may happen. You have to believe in the person of Jesus Christ. You're not saved by a principle. You're saved by a person. You're not saved by Christianity. You're saved by Jesus. I want to encourage you as a worship team comes up, leave the burning building and run into the arms of Jesus. Amen. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. As Jesus gave an invitation to all of those that were listening, I give you an invitation this day. The invitation is that you would enter in by the narrow gate. You would enter in by the gate that leads you to life everlasting. And you enter in because you're willing to humble yourself. You realize that you have no righteousness within you. You realize that the only righteousness that that can come to you is from God himself. And so you don't just believe Jesus died on a cross, you believe in Jesus. And you want to jump into his arms. You want to leave the burning building of your life and be saved. If that's where you are, then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. You're listening on the radio or the internet or you're here. Pray this prayer. Jesus, I believe you. I put my faith in you. You are my savior. You have rescued me from my sin. I admit I am a sinner. I admit I fall short and I am not righteous. And I accept your righteousness. The righteousness when you died on the cross. I accept it. God, I pray that you would help me as I continue in my pilgrimage in this life. From this point to the point where I see you face to face as you reign over your forever city. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed, our eyes still closed, if you ask Jesus Christ into your heart, would you please raise your hand so that I might see you? Is there anybody here this morning that did do that? I see your hand. Is there anyone else in here this morning? God bless you, Lord. We pray for our dear sister and anyone else that's listening that we can't see their hands. Lord, you know their hearts. Lord, thank you that you are with them on this journey all the way till they see you face to face. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um,
church, uh, we are going to remember what Jesus did for us on the cross, but we're gonna, this is going to be slightly abbreviated. We kind of talked a little bit about what God has done and what Jesus has done on the cross. I'm going to ask the worship team if you can lead us in a closing song. But uh, gentlemen, could you hand out the communion elements right now? We hold the bread in our hands and we consider the work that Jesus did on the cross. He made a choice to exchange his life, to exchange his life for your life. He didn't have to. Heaven's perfect. But he chose to do it. And he did it with joy in his heart. We hold this bread because we remember a person who loves us, who we love, and what he did for us. Jesus, we love you. Remember your body given for us as a substitute for us. And we thank you that you did it. We love you and we remember you. Shall we take together, church? And the grape juice in the cup that we hold reminds us and represents the blood of Jesus Christ. Without the blood of Jesus, we would still be carrying our burden of shame and guilt. The weight of all of it would still be there. Hunched over, crushed, knuckles dragging on the ground. But Jesus, His blood brings us the remission of sins. Our sins are not just covered, they're taken away. You can walk upright, not in your pride, but because Jesus has freed you. You don't walk ashamed or with your head down or you can walk with your head up because God loves you and you know he's taken it from you. God, we just thank you so much for the costly, costly purchase for us. The exchange of our sin and guilt and shame taken by the blood of the perfect Lamb of God. Jesus, we love you. Father, we love you for sending him. And we remember now, shall we take church? God bless you guys. Hey, enjoy this wonderful day the Lord has given to us.